0: Well, good morning to each of you today. Let's say you have a 16-year-old son, and this boy comes to you and he says, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad, uh, may I borrow the car tonight? And you say, Yes, if you bring it back by 10 p.m. And then your boy has a follow-up question. He says, Mom, Dad, what if, what if I bring it back at midnight, and you catch me, and you discipline me, and you take away driving privileges for a month, and if I learn my lesson, if I'm really sorry, and I come back, and if I ask to borrow the car again, will you let me? If you're like me, you're thinking, bring the car home at 10 o'clock, right? I lay out that scenario because that's basically the scenario that Solomon prays in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, real-life situation, Solomon had become the king of Israel. He had built the temple, but he, in his, his mind, and his heart of heart, he looked forward and he knew that the people of Israel would wander from God. And so in, the, in one of the longest prayers recorded in the Bible, Solomon lays out these seven scenarios, and in three of them he says, God, if your people blow it and they, they wander far from you, and if you discipline them, if you send pestilence or plagues or drought or famine, and if they turn back to you and pray, hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. Here's an example. This is in Second Chronicles 6. Solomon prays, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place, toward the temple, and acknowledge your name, And turn from their sin when you afflict them, then here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And so Solomon was wise. He prayed this way because he knew the people would wander far from him. Today we're going to look at God's response, and God's response is so much more gracious than we would think. God's response is so inviting. Basically what God tells uh, his people, he tells Solomon is, if you seek me, you will find me. He wants them to know ahead of time, if this happens to you, if you seek me, you will find me. And if we're honest, we will admit we need that same assurance, right? If we're honest, we admit that we habitually bring the car home at midnight. We, individually and corporately, we often wander away from God. Our obedience is selective. Our blind spots are so many times willful. And so we find that we've made a mess of our lives. Or sometimes it's not our doing. Maybe we're suffering some, some tragedy, some hardship, but because of what somebody else has done to us, or sometimes you're just experiencing the suffering that's common to humanity on this planet. But we too need the same assurance from God that if you seek me, you will find me. I want you to listen as I read uh, God's answer to Solomon. This is in 2 Chron- Chronicles 7. I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. But this is what God says. Then Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then he picks up on one of the scenarios. He said, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. This is God's word. And so we're going to focus in on verses 13 and 14. And uh, again, in verse 13, God picks up on this scenario that Solomon had laid out in chapter 6. And he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or if I command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. The only reason God would do that is if the people had wandered so far from him that there was only one way to get, his, one way to get their attention, namely through disaster. And so God says, if you are suffering because of the mess you've made of your life and you realize that you're under my discipline, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name, if you do these four things, he said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will respond and I will do these three things. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so God says, if my people, in the Old Testament, when God talks about my people, he's talking about the people of Israel. They were the the chosen people. And God didn't choose them because they were so great, because they had so much much potential. He just chose to set his love on them. At the same time, we find out in chapter 6, actually, anybody who came from another nation, if they wanted to worship the God of Israel, they could be counted among God's people. In our day, after the death and resurrection of Christ, we understand that the people of God is comprised of every of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, if you become a child of God through him, you are now counted among the people of God, and this promise is for you. This promise is for us. And so I want us to look, first of all, about what God says about seeking him, those four things he mentioned. Then we'll talk about the three things God promises, how we will find him. First of all, God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves. And so if you humble yourself before God, you're putting yourself in a posture where you're acknowledging you are God and I'm not. And there's all sorts of ways we do that. One way that the the scriptures talk about it, we humble ourselves by submitting to God's word. For example, in Isaiah 66, two, God says, but to this one I will look, I'm gonna notice this person, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. If you so care about what God thinks that you tremble at his word, I mean, you're just eager to hear it, the last thing you want, is to ignore or, or disregard something that God has said, then you're humble. And God says, I'm going to notice you. Arrogance is saying, God, I don't really care what you, you have to say. I don't want to know it. I don't want to spend any time thinking about it. But you can humble yourself by submitting to the Word. Two weeks from uh, today, we're going to talk about, or next week, we're going to talk about seeking God through the Word Another way to humble ourselves is through the practice of fasting, namely going without food for a period of time. In Psalms 35, 13, David wrote, I humbled my soul with fasting. And so it's a way to so say, God, I'm going to humble myself before you. I care more about you than food tomorrow. And so that's one way to do it. Two weeks from today, we're going to talk about the, the practice of fasting And so there are any number of different ways to to humble ourselves before God. But God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, second, if they pray. In 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon had asked, God, if we're in a desperate situation because of our own doing or somebody else's, if we pray, will you hear us? And so God says, if you pray, he's going to say later, I will hear from heaven. He will respond. Three weeks from today, we're going to talk about seeking God Through prayer. Jesus said very directly, those who ask, receive. Third, God says, if my people who are called by my name seek my face. The Bible talks about God having a face. It doesn't literally mean that he has a face up in heaven, but it means that he's a personal God. He's not a force. He's not an inanimate power. But if God has a face, that means he has eyes. He sees us. He has ears. He hears us. His mouth, he speaks. He has facial expressions. And so if we seek God's face, we pay attention to him as a personal God. And so if you have a dog, you know what it means to seek your face. We have this this Sheltie. We called her Molly the Collie uh, for 14 years. And sometimes I'd be sitting there at the table. I'd be reading or praying or thinking, and I'd have this sense somebody's looking at me and I would turn around and Molly's just staring at my face. And it's as clear as if she had said it out loud, she was saying, will you take me outside now? Or sometimes I'd sneak up on Molly and I would say, Molly. And she just immediately, she just seek my face. She wanna know, are you happy? Are you mad at me? Are you ready to play? What is it? And so that's what we're talking about. When you seek God's face, you just lock in on who God is. You wanna understand him. And if you're rooted in the scripture, you're not just making things up. No, you'll experience God as a good shepherd who leads you and protects you and, and provides for you. You'll experience him as a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. You may experience him the way the disciples did when they were in the boat and the storm was raging. And Jesus said with sadness, oh, ye, oh, oh you of little faith. And so we seek his face. Uh, God says, if you do these four things, if you seek me in this wholehearted way, you humble yourself, you pray, uh, you, you wait, I missed one. If you humble yourself, you seek my face. Uh, you Oh, I've got one more to go. Sorry. The fourth one is you, you seek my face, fourth thing, and turn from your wicked ways. And this is the way the Bible talks about repentance. And so if you're heading this way and you repent, you turn around and go a different direction. And so turning from our wicked ways, and this is something we're responsible to do. Nobody can do it for you. So when God convicts you of something in your life that is wrong, God says, you need to turn from it. You don't do it independent of his spirit. You don't do it independent of other people. You have other people to pray for you and encourage you, but you have to do it. And so I find that there's a certain power in naming things using biblical terminology. We tend to talk about our sins as struggles. But when you name something as wickedness or evil, it's a whole different experience. There's this urgency. That's something that will will cause me damage. It will will be a harm to the people around me. There'll be this urgency to turn from it whether it's pride, whether you're judgmental, whether it's anger, whatever it is, you're much more likely to understand it's destructively and turn from it if you name it. And so God says, if you seek me in this comprehensive way, then he says, you will find me. And this is what makes it worth it to seek God. I'm at a point in my life, I'm not just, I'm not just seeking God because I, I'm supposed to going through the motions. I want to seek God and find him. He's promising, I will actually come through for you. I will do things for you. And notice what he promises here. This should light a fire under us. This should make us, give us a sense of urgency here. God promises, first of all, I will hear from heaven. And to hear from heaven means that he will hear favorably. And uh, when we seek him in these comprehensive ways, we can be confident that God will hear from heaven and respond in mercy and grace and ways of kindness that we, we, we don't even think of. Second, he says, I will forgive their sin. And when God forgives your sin, he basically says, you have offended me. You owe me a debt, but I am never gonna make you pay for it. I'm gonna bear that debt myself. And so I'm never going to rub it in your face. I'm not going to hold a grudge. When God forgives you, I mean, your your relationship is restored. And we understand, living after the the cross, we understand that our forgiveness is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. You put your faith in him, you are forgiven. And when you sin, you confess it and you experience a new experience of your forgiveness. And so that's what God promises Third, God says, I will heal their land. And in the original context, of course, that was the promised land. That was the land of Canaan. And depending on the type of um, judgment or discipline he had brought to them would depend on the healing. If he had closed up the heavens so there's no rain, healing would mean bringing the rains and and causing the ground to be fruitful again. And in in the Old Testament, You see this in like J.R.R. Tolkien's writings and C.S. Lewis. uh, The condition of the land reflected the condition of the people's heart. And so healing their land reflected that he had healed their their hearts. And in the new covenant, of course, the people of God are scattered throughout all the nations. And so when God, this this promise to heal their land, for us, that means at the very least, he's going to heal the deep places in our hearts. History would also suggest that when the body of Christ in any location experiences God's fullness and experiences God's power, that there's often a ripple effect out into the community and the cities and the nations where the people of God live. And so this is the invitation that God tells us, if you seek me, you will find me. You will experience this this restoration of your relationship with me and I will come through for you in gracious ways, kind ways, powerful ways. I will do things for you that you cannot do for yourself. And the place to begin is to enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you say, Jesus, I believe that when you died, you died for my sins. If you believe that, Something so miraculous happens that you have new desires, you have new appetites, you have new ambitions. And God gives you this internal motivation to seek Him. And so when you hear you're supposed to seek the Lord, you're not like, ah, oh, that's something I don't really want to do, but I will if I have to. No, you have this internal motivation. This is the God who has saved me. And so, of course, I want to seek Him. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, that's a place to start. But I would say to all of us, wherever you are in in your walk with God, we're gonna challenge you to do something over the next three months. I don't think we've ever really put it in these terms, but we are going to challenge you to accept God's invitation and make a long-term commitment to seeking God. And this is what we envision. And so the six weeks leading up to, to Easter, many traditions, they call it Lent. But in, during this, this Easter season, the six months, uh, we're going gonna, we're gonna designate, to designate that a season of seeking. It will be similar to the 21 days of prayer and fasting we've done the past couple of years. But between now and that six-week six period, so in the next five weeks, We're going to to ask you to do three things, okay? We're going to ask you to be very intentional and do three things. Number one, decide that you will seek God. Number two, decide how you will seek God. And then number three, discern why you will seek God. I want to talk about each of those three things, uh, especially the last one. We'll spend more time on that. So first of all, I would like for you to decide that you will seek God. And many of you are already seeking God, okay? So this will be more of the same. That some of you, quite honestly, maybe you've never sought God before in your life. Maybe you go to church, but in terms of seeking God, you know, humbling yourself before him, praying, uh, seeking him, turning from your wickedness, maybe you've never really done that. Or maybe you've done that in the past but you've got these disappointments built up and you're like, I don't know if I wanna go there again. I don't don't know if I wanna set myself up for disappointment again. And so I just wanna acknowledge this may be hard for you. This may be a, a painful thing for you to even contemplate, but it is so worth it. I would just plead with you over the next five weeks, whatever it takes, pray, have spiritual conversations with people, get to the place where you say, you know, say, by the grace of God, I will seek him. So decide that you will seek God. And secondly, decide how you will seek God. And uh, the next three Sundays, again, we're going to talk about specific core spiritual habits that you can can use in seeking God. Uh, There are time-tested ways of seeking God that God's people down through the millennia actually have sought after him. So we're going to talk about seeking God through the word, through fasting, and through prayer. And again, some of you already practice these disciplines. So you will just say, keep going with it. Others of you, you might pick up these three habits, maybe some others, and you might find that they give some structure, they give some, they give some, some uh, direction for your seeking after God. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, he, he likened seeking God or walking with God I uh, said, do it the way an athlete trains for competition. 1 Corinthians 9. He said, I buffet my body. I make it my slave because I don't want to be disqualified. Or he said, I'm like a boxer. I don't just beat, all, beat around wildly. No, I take aim when I seek after God. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He said, if you discipline your body, it has some value. If you discipline your soul, if you discipline yourself spiritually, it has value for all things. And so we're going we're to encourage you not only to decide that you will seek God, but decide how you seek God. Everything worth doing, you have a plan. You don't just say, I just hope this happens some, somehow. That you will seek God, how you will seek God. And then third, discern why you will seek God. During this six-week period, why are you seeking God? And it's not that you always have to have a, a specific why, but in, in 1 Corinthians 7, they did. There were these scenarios, people were desperate. And God says, if you find yourself desperate because of my discipline or because of some other, some of the, some other circumstances, seek me. And so over the next five weeks, we would encourage you, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your circumstances. Notice the things that are most important for you. Find the most strategic important thing for you and seek God in that context. And so I'm gonna give you some examples here. Could be a a lot of different things. I don't want to limit to limit you to this, but here's some ideas. I like the way one person put it. They said, what is the stupidest thing you're doing right now? Seriously, well, and you just know what it is. What's the stupidest thing you do, you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? It's sabotaging your relationships with the people closest to you. I mean, it just poisons the atmosphere. It, it puts this barrier between you and God. That might be the place for you to start. Find what that is, seek God, find God. Let him begin changing that, that area of your life That could be a a revolutionary thing in your life. Or maybe it's a decision you have to make about your career. Or maybe a decision about a relationship. Maybe that's what you need to seek God about. God says, it's in James 1, James said, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give it in spades. He says he's not not stingy. He's uh, He's not reluctant. He will give generously and without reproach. And so... God loves to give wisdom to people who seek it. Or maybe there's a virtue that you need. You just have realized. Maybe you realize, you know, I realize I'm a critical judgmental person. As I sit, as I sit around my house, as I go to work, as I just around, I just feel superior to everybody and everything all the time. Maybe you need humility. Maybe you'd say, I'm gonna take this six weeks, I'm gonna press in and I'm gonna look God in the face. And I'm going to say, God, teach me habits of humility. Honestly, if you emerge out of Easter weekend and you've established some habits of humility, what an upgrade. I mean, what a gift to the people in your life. Or if you let go of your anger and you learn how to be gentle in what you say and how you say it, what an amazing thing. So under the, over the next five weeks, discern why you need to seek God and let that fuel how you seek god and let it motivate you to seek him with all your heart. You know, four and, a, four and a half years ago, Brenda and I, my wife Brenda and I had an experience that really drove home for me the power of having a compelling why, a compelling reason for pursuing something wholehearted. Our son Riley, uh, many of you know him, uh, but he had, he blew out his ACL in 2016. So he had the surgery and he decided just on his own, he said, I'm gonna run an Ironman. I'm gonna compete in an Ironman. So his why was he wanted to train, he wanted to finish this Ironman to prove that he could come back stronger than he was ahead of time. And in case you know what an Ironman is, don't know what it is, you swim in open water 2.4 miles. And you get out of the water, you get on a bike and you bike for 112 miles. And then you run a marathon. Okay, 26.2 miles. Okay, so it's a serious thing. You don't just wake up one morning, I think I'll do an Ironman today. No, you train for a year. So you decide that you're going to do it. You decide how you're going to train. You have to have a compelling why. Why, are you gonna, why would you do this to yourself? If you don't have a compelling reason, you'll cut corners or you will give up. Anyway, Riley finished it in less than 13 hours. He was, he was pleased with that. But I want to tell you about two things that we experienced at that Ironman event. It was in Madison, Wisconsin. That just When I think about these, it just inspires me. It makes me want to come up with a compelling why this Easter season, something for me to pursue wholeheartedly. So the first is this. Uh, there, was a, there was a group of athletes at that Ironman who probably trained harder than anybody else out there but their goal was not to finish first. These athletes were so compassionate and they trained so hard because each of them was paired with a disabled athlete. They needed to be strong enough to swim 2.4 miles, pulling somebody else on a raft behind them. They had trained so hard so that they could bike 112 miles pulling someone else, another disabled athlete, in a cart behind them. They had to train so hard, be so fit, that they could run a marathon pushing another in a runner's, runner's stroller in front of them. So they weren't, they weren't training just across the finish line themselves. They wanted to get somebody else across the line as well. And you and I see whether you seek God or not, it doesn't only affect your life. There are other people you know who need you to help them get across the finish line. They do. There's some people you're going to, need to, you're going to need to bear other people's burdens. If you're not spiritually fit, if you, are not, you don't have spiritual resolve, spiritual strength, you won't be able to be there for them. You need freedom in different areas of your life because you know people You need to help other people get freedom. You need to let go of your anger because there are people in your life who need to experience the kindness of God through you. And so one reason we need to seek and find God is so that we'll be useful for other people. The other experience happened late that night. And so Iron Man starts at 7 a.m., They would send these fleet, these, uh, you know, 50 or 75 people out into the water They look like guppies swimming out there, and they just keep sending them out. But uh, that was 7 a.m., but the the cutoff time was midnight, okay? And so there were these elite athletes. They were impressive, and some of them finished the whole Ironman before others started their marathon. But you know who impressed me the most? Late that night, there were other kind of -of middle-of-the-pack athletes who had finished the race. And they either stayed around, or they came back to cheer on the people that were trying to cross the, the, the line before the cutoff time. And so at 11: 30 that night, the downtown streets of Madison, Wisconsin, they were just lined with people. Many people had finished the race hours earlier, and they were cheering on people at 11.30 who were hobbling toward the finish line barely walk. some of them cr- literally crawling the last stretch, 11.30, 11.45, 11.50, 11.55. The people who finish the race, they have a voice. They have a powerful. When they cheer you on, they know what you're going through. There are people in your life who are ready to drop out of the, drop out of the race. My generation, I know a lot of people. They're like, done. Oh, I did the Christian thing. I sought after God. I know people who peaked in college who are my age now. We all have people in our life who are going to be tempted to drop out of the race. They don't know if it's worth it. They don't know if it's even possible to to cross the finish line. One of the reasons you and I need to train, not just for ourselves, is because we need to be in that great cloud of witnesses, that can help other people run their race. And so we're gonna challenge you. Seek after God, decide that you will seek God, decide how you will seek God and have a compelling why. God says, if you seek me, you will find me. And if you find God in these areas of your life, you will have an abundant life. You will have a life that God can use. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would give us this desire to seek you. God, may it not be business as usual. We pray, God, that this would be a season where we, we take you seriously, we take you up on this offer, and we seek you with all our hearts. And we pray, God, that you would lead us. Pray that in the next five weeks, we would, you would open our eyes, show us why we should seek you so wholeheartedly. We pray, God, that we would discern that that you would lead us by your spirit. God, we would seek you joyfully, sacrificially, that we would find you. God, I pray for those here today who uh, might be discouraged, might be just hear this and just think, yeah, no way. God, would you, with your kindness, melt our hearts. Pray that we'd be people who seek you wholeheartedly, humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.